Let us pray. Startle us, O God, with your Advent joy. On this third week, convict us and spur us on with a desire for the joy that you intend for the world. Help us to know how it is different from empty promises of happiness or satisfaction, but it is a joy that leads to a home with you. Give us confidence in your promises. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Last week we read a story about John the Baptist, a story that is read year in and year out during Advent. We talked about how John reminds us to be spiritual people and does so in unpredictable ways, just like he was unpredictable. This week we turn to a second story about John the Baptist, one that is not read quite so often. John, the political dissident that he was, had been thrown into prison by the time of this story. The Judean kings in the dynasty of Herod were well known for abusing their power and oppressing the people, as well as for unsavory personal behaviors. John was publicly critical of at least one of these Herods, who reacted as tyrants typically do, he threw John in prison to intimidate and silence him. So John, from behind bars in Herod's prison, sends a message to Jesus. And his message is a question. It appeared at the beginning of today's reading, John asks Jesus, Are you the one who is to come? Or are we to wait for another. Commentator Mark Yours talks about what is going on behind this question. John was thrown into prison, as I have said, because of his attacks on Herod, and also for telling the people repeatedly that Jesus was exactly the Savior they had been told about, the Savior they were waiting for. John had shown courageous faith and hope in Jesus in the face of predictable retribution from Herod, and now John finds himself in prison. So John wonders about Jesus. Are you really the one? Was I mistaken? He asks. Was I mistaken because not only was I unable to stop Herod's sinning, but you, Jesus, also seem unable to stop him. Nothing has changed, and here I am in prison. So are you the one who is to come, he asks, or are we to wait for another? Perhaps I should have kept my mouth shut and stayed out of Herod's way. Nothing seems to 
have changed except that I am behind bars. John's question is one version of a question many of us have asked, and the question is this, can you really believe in the power of good? Can you really believe in the power of good? In the face of so much evil in the world, so much suffering that seems to remain the same, is it really worth aligning ourselves with someone or something we believe to be good? Is it worth giving sacrificially of ourselves to stand up for something we believe in? Or maybe it's better to leave well enough alone. Perhaps the tyrants of the world are really the winners. Won't our lives be better if we just go along with them? Can you really believe in the power of good? When John the Baptist asks this question of Jesus, Jesus has a challenging answer. Here's the scene. Jesus' disciples are the ones who bring John's message from, his, from prison, his question. And so they ask Jesus, John wants to know, are you the one or is there another? And Jesus responds to them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. Jesus tells John to consider the evidence, and the evidence is made up of two arguments. The first one is simple. Jesus lists, as I have just done, the good works that are a part of his ministry. It is a list of the very promises that are made by the prophets of the Old Testament, promise, promises about what the Savior was going to do. So, John, says Jesus, the answer to your question is yes, I am the one. There's another layer to Jesus' challenging answer to John, and I think it's in what Jesus does not say. There is something missing in Jesus' answer to John's particular problems, and it forms a second implicit response. By his silence, Jesus says, yes, Herod is still in power. Yes, John, corruption and sin remain at the highest levels of power. And yes, John, you are still in prison. Jesus says nothing of these things. He does not defend himself against them. Jesus seems to be admitting to John, you are right, John. Your belief in the good, it has not solved your problems. In fact, there is an argument to be made that your life has become even harder. Jesus seems to admit sometimes life is harder for people who commit themselves to the good. 
In fact, Jesus finishes his listing of evidence by admitting that believing in him is hard. He says, blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. That's a challenging response. It's a challenging response to John's question, but note it does not come as a mandate or a command. This is an invitation Jesus gives to John. It's a choice. Jesus presents the evidence, but he does not insist upon what John should think or do about it. Perhaps John will decide that Jesus is not worth it that the results that benefit others are not good enough for him. Perhaps he will renounce Jesus, recant of his criticisms of Herod, and get himself freed from prison. Jesus leaves it up to John to decide if the good is worth it. The choice belongs to John about who he is going to be. Let me tell you a modern story about someone who believes in goodness and hope. Liz Murray was the keynote speaker this past week at the annual breakfast of the Interfaith Hospitality Network, our mission partner in housing homeless families, as we did here at the church last week. Liz is the director of Project Arthur, a mentoring program for teens, and she's the author of a book called Homeless to Harvard, a bestseller that tells the story of her childhood. Liz tells an amazing story of choosing goodness and hope in the face of overwhelming evidence and temptation to give up. Raised in the Bronx on the brink of homelessness, Liz had a childhood with memories of eating chapstick and toothpaste during times in the month when there wasn't any food in the apartment. Her drug-addicted parents died when she was 15. A short time later, the upstairs neighbor, who often looked out for Liz and her sister, he died too. Liz was placed in a group home after her parents died. Frightened by the abuse that she suffered there, Liz spent her late teen years couch surfing and sleeping in hallways and stairwells while hiding her homelessness. At every single turn, Liz Murray's young life showed evidence of why a person should lose hope and never imagine that things could be better. Sometimes she did lose hope. And yet somehow she was able to see good mixed in the misfortune that she had seen. And she started to ask herself a question, what if? What if things could be different? What if things could be different? Liz is insistent that her ability to ask these questions were not all about her. She did not pull herself up by her bootstraps. It was other people in her life that gave her hope, who taught her how to see the good. 
Liz did not see her parents as awful people. She remembers them as folks who genuinely struggled with mental illness and who tried, though far from perfectly, to put her needs in front of theirs. She believes they loved her. The upstairs neighbor, though he died, was the person who showed Liz that she had value and dreams worth dreaming. He helped her with homework and told her that she belonged in school and took her there when no one else was paying attention. In high school, the central mentor in Liz's story was a guidance counselor. He met her rough edges and her teenage angst and her negative attitude with boundless hope. He got her back on track by presenting her with big challenges and hopes, and he brought goodness back into her life, and he told her something that she had no reason to believe. He said, Liz, sometimes people are good. Liz, sometimes people are good. When Liz got into Harvard... And she became instantly famous when the New York Times awarded her a full scholarship. It was a little thing that she remembered most, an overworked, underfunded mom who started driving to the Bronx every week from New Jersey to pick up and do Liz's laundry because it was the one way she could think of that she could help, that she could do her own part in giving Liz hope. Liz Murray believes in mentors and their power to offer hope. If you are participating in our new mentoring program with Third Presbyterian Church, you must read Liz Murray's book and thank you for what you are doing. Often the work of a mentor is simply to remind someone else that sometimes people really are good. That belief that people are good, that belief has not made Liz's life easy. And it has not taken away her story of suffering and loss. But she has changed her own life and the lives of countless others. And she has inspired so many because of her belief in the good. What does this have to do with our story? Well, I, I, I can't help but believe that Liz's hope-filled, no-nonsense high school guidance counselor, I can't help but thinking that he would have liked this story about what Jesus has to say to John the Baptist. Consider the evidence, says Jesus. Yes, the world is a hard place. Yes, Suffering surrounds us. Yes, following me is not going to make your life easier. What if you chose to believe in the good anyway? The choice is yours, John. And just like that guidance counselor believed in Liz Murray, even though she didn't give him any reason to believe in her, Jesus believed in John in spite of the doubts John expressed. After Jesus' disciples leave the scene to carry Jesus' message to John the Baptist, 
Jesus turns back to the crowds who've been listening to the exchange. They are probably a bit hopeless themselves, those crowds, hearing that their hero, John the Baptist, that he himself may be losing hope. Is he right? Should they lose hope too? Jesus sees the doubt on their faces, and he answers them, beginning, What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What were you hoping for? Jesus asks. If you expected corrupt and uninspiring leadership, people to keep you in your place, you know where to find it, the royal palace. But if you expected a prophet to tell you about something better, you've got one. And his name is John. This is a bold statement for Jesus, for John may be wavering in his belief in Jesus, but Jesus is not wavering a bit in his love for John. Go ahead, says Jesus. Go ahead, ask your questions, express your doubts. I can take it. Working through those troubles is part of what it means to have a life that is lived on the side of the good. There's an end to the story I've been telling you people, Jesus says. An end where good finally triumphs over evil, where hurting people are made whole, and where love wins, and I know you're going to get there. Believing in the goodness Jesus preached, believing that it will, we will one day arrive at that fullness. It is a lifelong journey in belief. And that belief, the belief in that destination that we will one day get there, that is the essence of Christmas. Christmas is a choice. A choice to believe in a promise about goodness. A promise that has not yet been fulfilled, but that is renewed every single year at the manger in Bethlehem. Every time we hear the story. When's the last time you really thought about the story of Christmas? In this story, there is a tyrant named Herod who props himself up by keeping his people fearful and hopeless. God responds to this tyrant and to all the miserable tyrants of the world by sending a baby. A baby. The one who is promised as the savior of the world is a helpless infant. And as his story begins, Unbelievably, mysteriously, other kings will travel great distances just to meet him. They will risk life and limb lying to Herod in order to find Jesus. And then they will bow down to this baby and they will give their wealth and their allegiance to him. Who would believe such a story? Who would believe such a story? Who would believe such a story, especially when you consider that what happens at the manger scene does not solve everything? Herod will continue to reign. 
John the Baptist and that baby named Jesus, they will grow up and they will suffer and pay with their lives because of their love for the good. Why? Why would anyone follow them? And yet so many did. For 2,000 years, in every place and time around this world, in sanctuaries today full just like this one, this is why you are here. Next weekend on Christmas Eve, we will tell the story. Do not let it be lost on you. This is a story that defies all reason. It is a story that defies all practicality. It is a story that defies all self-preservation. Come hear it again. It is the greatest story ever told.